Hi, my name is Ben Atkinson and welcome to the Functional Health Podcast. I interview some of the leading voices in nutrition and lifestyle medicine and I will share with you their stories, their expertise and their advice, shedding light on the industry from each of their perspectives to help improve your health from today. This week, I'm delighted to share with you my conversation with Anthony Haynes. Anthony is a highly experienced functional medicine practitioner, and today we dive into the topic of hormonal and neurological resilience and how we can improve it. A very suitable topic given the current global situation. So, without further ado, Anthony, welcome to the show. So, without further ado, Anthony, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Ben. Really great to talk to you. Really looking forward to this conversation. I am so glad to talk to you. And it's been a long time coming. I know just before the podcast, we were just talking about the first time we met at the ICANN Summit, which was years ago now. It was years. Although, although when you said the date, I felt like I'd met you when you were much, much younger, but you were just, just a bit younger. Uh, it was about four or five years ago, wasn't it? Yeah, I think it was actually 2016, maybe. Yeah. Got a feeling. Um, but yeah long time but anyway really good to connect with you now i'm really pleased through our mutual friend elizabeth yes fantastic Uh, yeah he's brilliant um so let's dive into the podcast talking about resilience particularly hormonal and neurological resilience um just for the listeners this might be a relatively complex topic to what we've spoken about before on the podcast but just uh, all, all I would say is bear with us because I know I'm going to learn a lot just from speaking to An- um, Anthony prior to this call. Yeah, I, I, I will hope I can make things and I'll, I'll do my best to make things uh, in as plain English as possible. But it, it is, it's, it's, it's fascinating. The more, since we arranged this, uh, the, the consideration I've had for the subject matter, which is all about what you're going to ask me about now, it's, it's actually sort of grown, it's grown into an appreciation that's actually been all the greater precisely because you've asked me to have this conversation. So I want to appreciate you for that. I've learned more about just how relevant it is. And of course, talk about the timing in the global situation as well. I mean, it's a brilliantly fantastic topic. So what are we going to talk about, Ben? Resilience. Resilience, exactly. Resilience. It is a remarkable thing. On the face of it, um, I've had the great fortune of actually presenting over 350 different presentations of webinars uh, in, in since uh, the last 29 years. And it's the first one, I've, I've given one presentation on resilience, which actually this, this conversation was born out of that webinar presentation I gave fairly recently. But it, it's uh, since the conversation, since considering the things you, you've asked me about as well, I really have appreciated the absolute importance of resilience and how all my peers and colleagues who are nutritional therapists or other therapists have actually been supporting their clients for their own resilience without necessarily knowing it. And what we're doing with this conversation is we're bringing the word into the vocabulary and the mindset of anyone who's listening in resilience. And we're going to explain what it means, what you can do, and specifically with regard to nervous system and hormonal system and, and how nutrition plays an absolute vital role in it, as well as lifestyle choices as well. So I'll, I'll, I'll look to address the sort of the whole gamut of things, not just key nutrients. I'll talk about biochemistry and I'll talk about hormones and negative feedback loops neurotransmitters, possibly even enzymes involved in neurotransmitter metabolism as well as hormones, and also key nutrients. And there's been lots and lots and lots of studies. Scientists have been paid salaries. So they these times before any lockdowns ever existed on the planet, of course, <laughs> these guys went to work. They went to work, they left their families, they left their wives or left their husbands, and they went to do research papers on this topic with specific <laughs> regard to nutrients too. They put the hours in. And this is the information that I've read and I'll share some of it with you. I like that. 
and it, well, some of them are still going to work. Let's just let's just yes. clarify. I, th- I yes. think science is still happening, although it has slowed, admittedly. Yeah, good. I hope they are. <laughs> so one thing which is uh, extremely topical, I think, right now is stress in our current environment. And we are bombarded, it seems, by bad news every single day. And I, I know from a personal note, this can take a mental and emotional toll on everyone. Mm. Yes. And maybe... I guess I wasn't going to start here thinking about it, but it might be a, a great place to start in terms of resilience yes. from from stress, for example, and in yes. particular, talking about how cortisol interplays with that. So yeah, maybe definitely. we can start by talking yeah, about that interplay. Absolutely, and, and I've got some commentary to make. I mean, certainly I'll just share this with you. Since April, I have vowed, and I haven't, and I've kept the vow, and sometimes I make promises, and I, I'll, I'll actually answer this question a bit later as well, and how relevant it is, but... Um, being true to my word to things, but I'm never going to watch the BBC in my life again, um, sincerely, because the it literally is an immune suppressant, um, um, hypothalamic pituitary adrenal upsetting um, process to hear what they have to say, uh, whether it's true or not. And I've discovered lots of things are saying aren't quite as they appear. So it's um, listen to bad news all the time. I mean, it really it really is you know it's generating fear. And that process was actually the very process that, that put the German population into the into the into the the hands of of Hitler. I and mean, effectively, whilst it, I'm not I'm not likening it onto anyone, but it's the same process of in, in basically entrenching everybody in a fear state. Now, when we get stressed and we're overwhelmed by certainly uh, the environment around us, someone goes, "What's going around us?" and it's what's going on for me. So we've got a, a stress to do with ourselves, a stress to do with the world, and a lot of us can pick up the anxiety from others. And what that does is that stimulates uh, in the brain. It goes, oh, oh, says the brain. So it's a stimulus. It's a, it's a stimulating process, excitatory. And that leads to a, a hormone from the anterior pituitary called adrenocorticotropic hormone or ACTH. So adrenocorticotropic hormone. In Latin, that means the hormone that goes towards the adrenals. And then the adrenal glands release cortisol, which is the most abundant um, stress response hormone, cortisol. We may have heard of hydrocortisone. Well, cortisol gets converted to cortisone in the body. So it's our own steroid hormone. Mm-hmm. And cortisol is the prime hormone for stress. And if we raise the right level, we have a good response to stress. So it's the anti-stress hormone, as well as being called the stress hormone. If we have enough of it, then we can mount a response. So our mount response, so it actually mobilizes me, my access to fuel, to, to, to convert glycogen, to to, to glucose, so I've got energy, I'm ready to run, I'm ready to flee, I'm possibly also ready to freeze as well. So it's a, the, the, but usually it's fight and flight. And it's really first described by the brilliant Hungarian Canadian PhD scientist called Dr. Hans Selyer, and he wrote a book called The Stress of Life. I've got a copy in my shelf, you probably have on yours, um, published many, many years ago and, and republished many, many times. And his studies were really done with rats, but really he discovered something called the General Adaptation Syndrome, the GAS, where he identified that individuals when exposed to certain stress, you get an elevated response, so elevated cortisol, which is exactly what we should have. Brilliant. It's an anti-stress hormone. It helps us to, to deal with the thing. And what trouble is the human body is only designed, in fact, most animals and human bodies are designed for short-term stresses. I can handle that. And then it goes away. Okay, so recharge and the levels of cortisol come down. And so we have this, uh, great. And so we, we actually now come on to the definition of resilience, which is really bounce back ability. I was thinking of one word, if I could, as a synonym. I think bounce, bounce back ability is not technically a single word, but bounce back ability, it really does sum it up. No matter what you've been through, you bounce back, 
to exactly the state you were in before. Mm -hmm. So I liken it to the classic picture of a sapling tree um, that's planted and the wind blows it and you can see it bends over in this cartoon image we have on our minds. I and the sapling bends over and then after the wind is blown and etc it comes back to level now in this example of life i would assert that if, if we are the sapling um then actually it's winds from all directions it's not just one direction it's actually the other so it's from northeast south and west we the wind so we actually need to be adaptive and flexible in all directions but ultimately want to see at the end when this is over when it's over when the stress is over are we standing straight and effectively, so it's, it's to me, resilience is a very, is hopefully well, well, um, there's a metaphor um, that conveys what resilience is. Mm -hmm. It's the ability to bounce back. It doesn't, no, no matter how low we get, either sapling is bent to the ground, well, that, gosh, 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 that's awful. If, if that was the way it was going to be, then we are in a crooked state. There's no doubt about it. But it's, if we come back to that once the duress is and the stress is gone, uh, that's resilience. So it doesn't mean say someone has a panic attack. Well, the panic attack could be an indication of the sapling bending, you know, severely at an angle. The panic attack is like, oh, I'm not having the stress well. But if you bounce back after that, that's, that's resilience. So we all may handle things a different way. You may have heard someone say, well, I can handle a crisis, but it's the domestic stuff of multitasking in the kitchen with the kids and the dinner and my work and the, and the money and the thing and the noise. You know, I can't handle that. So, but I can handle a crisis. I can handle when there's a fire in the house. I am cool and I sort it out. But when there's all this multitasking and, and someone's nagging at me and there's food put on the table and there's, the doorbell rings and, and I lose my rag, you know, sort of thing. Some people are, are better off handling big situations compared to small ones. So the stress hormone cortisol is the, it's the most abundant, really one of the most important hormones that we've got. We've got lots and lots of hormones, mm -hmm. but it is one of the major ones produced in the adrenal glands, which sit on the kidneys. And that's the, the anti-stress or the stress hormone. But as I said, Ben, <clears throat> we're only designed for short-term bursts of that. It's the chronic stress, especially if it's chronic and acute, um, that can be negative. Now, it's well been documented um, by doctors and my colleagues as well that if, if they, uh, one of my doctor friends said, if he gets a teenager who's in a bad way, in a poor mood, depression, even suicide ideation, the first thing he recommends them to do is to stop all their social media. And so we come to the, your, your conversation about what well, the news that's going on with stress. Yes. Then I would wholeheartedly, absolutely categorically recommend they do not watch any television with, of any news anyway. I maybe watch some, some comedy program that makes you laugh, um, you know, find, find something. And of course, we've got binge watching of comedies and things. But I, was, I would find the half hour slot of an old Ab Fab series for those of you I met dating myself. To, Absolutely to, fabulous. To, yeah, to, don't to, worry. <laughs> to Blackadder, to Would I Lie to You, which I really enjoy with um, with Lee Mack and, and David Mitchell, for example. Yeah. So, so I think I think turning off all uh, news. Um, first of all, it may not be true. Second of all, it's certainly designed for fear. Um, and then with the fear, that means that we're more manipulatable, um, depending on what message we receive. So, so I'd, I'd recommend that wholeheartedly. And, it, it, and also what's strange, it can be addictive. You, one can be addicted to these ghastly figures, this death tally um, that's, that's on the news right now. So it's, it's a very good time to, to speak to this. I, I would say only gather the news. Why um, do you think it's addictive in that sense? Yeah, so it is a good question. Um, and this is something that, that actually has been studied by, by the psychological operations team um, that, that run the show. And I'm aware of this. And I've actually listened to interviews from people who are, are in MI6 and MI5 and so on. I've listened to, to the interviews. And they describe basically it, the addiction is, is that once you, you have a high, if you like, with, with the cortisol response, you have a stress response. And it's like, oh, oh, 
and then and then and then you turn the TV again. You want to get a fix. Get a fix. So what happens with the high is, of course, what goes up goes down. I guess that's a Newtonian physics mm -hmm. law. And so you could be bereft of cortisol. So with low cortisol and possibly with low dopamine as well, which is therefore a neurotransmitter and low noradrenaline. So so we've got hormones and neurotransmitters which could be on alert. They're produced oh, 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 in, in the acute and then they're not there. And now I feel a bit flat. Mm -hmm. So let me let me have something to stimulate that. So the stimulation of the bad news actually does that more than good news. So good bad news stimulates the the stress response greater than good news. Although it is true to say that everyone who's won the lottery has actually had a crash. By definition, we tracked everyone who's won the lottery so far, and they've all crashed. So the good news does actually lead to crashes as well as, as the bad news. The um, so it's really the uh, the the up the stimulus. So it's like having lots of coffee or, or other types of stimulation and then it's not there it's taken away you're then left and so you it's actually a fix it's unwittingly a fix to help you to feel normal and this is actually so it's a very interesting point because addiction fun enough it's actually one of the comments and thoughts i've been having about this conversation is to is to share with you you know about well you know addiction i really consider this i would say addiction is one of the not the only but it's one of the antithesis antitheses of resilience because it's a repeatable process which actually most addictions are negative now i think that everyone's got addictions and i don't want to be rude to anyone but everyone's got addictions i'm not saying everyone's an alcoholic or, a, or whatever holic it is or a drugaholic etc etc it's just that we're all addicted to something and, and it's a question of, of how significant that addiction is on health but all addictions lead to the behavior um telling you what to do rather than you deciding what's best for you is that there, so it becomes a habit that isn't necessarily in your best interest health-wise, and it, most addictions don't tend to be healthy. Uh, I was addicted to exercise uh, in, a, in a previous life, <laughs> when I'm, uh, a few, quite a few years ago, and I, I used to train twice a day, most days of the week, for a few years. Right. Wow. So, okay. Yeah, I, it was called obligate exercising. If I'd known about, if I'd known now, I'd have got help. I'd have, first of all, I'd, I'd recognise it, but of course, you don't know when you're in the midst of things. And so maybe this conversation can be helpful for some, but addicted to exercise. And, and now I've got a very, very different outlook on, on the exercise for sure. But I was obliged to, and I, I, including training on Christmas day as well. I'm not kidding you. I would, um, I was, a, I was a trainaholic and it was basically addicted to that. And then I was well, a carbohydrate. I actually, I actually well. like exercising on Christmas day. That is like my perfect day to have a workout in, but you know, I know not everyone is like that, no, um, no, but no. I definitely take your point on board. So, so cortisol, and then you've got other messengers in the body, noradrenaline and, and is one, and dopamine, noradrenaline, the same sequence, uh, metabolically speaking. And you can actually, then you have a stimulus of those things. And so it's kind of like, a, it gives you literally a biochemical high, even, even if it's unpleasant news. And so you can see how people can be actually gripped and rather hooked into negative news. Um, and then so uh, on a biochemical level, even though it's like, oh, people are dying. I mean, it's like, if we think about our families and so on, it's, it's very sad and every life, every life lost is, needs to be appreciated as an individual life as opposed to a number. Mm -hmm. And um, so we, we, we also become numb to numbers. So the numbers then, we, that we, we haven't got 100,000 family members, so we sort of lose sight of the numbers. So it's a fix. So we, we a, a lot of people, um, as we well know from the statistics, unfortunately, the suicides have increased dramatically. And this is in students and young folk as well. Um, considering that uh, we've got no chance of dying of anything else from uh, under 20 uh, and you've got suicide, that, that becomes a significant um, mortality factor in the youngsters. 
because they've got a 99.9% chance of being fine with this SARS-CoV-2 virus by all accounts, according to statistics. Um, and so um, the, the negative factors of, of lockdown and what's going on can have a very negative impact. And it's particularly having a negative impact compared to the risk of having the virus uh, under the age of 60. So if I ask you the question, Ben, you might know the answer, but I read this in the statistics about how many people, healthy people died under the age of 60 in 2020 of the SARS-CoV-2. And I was stunned to see the number of 388. Well, that, that is astonishing. Um, but I think it's over 80% of the deaths ha or fatalities have been in adults above the age of 70 years old and normally when they have comorbidities anyway. Um, two and a half comorbidities. The average age is 82 and two and a half comorbidities. And so the chance, so there were six people under, under 20 who died, so according to statistics anyway. So, and there were, um, and it was most of them were 40 to 60 and they had 388. I think it was 342 were age, age 40 to 60. And well, you had 20 you something. 20-something age 20 to 40, and you're six under, under 20, who are healthy people who died of, apparently. And of course, now the statistics are coming out about the testing, which we've long known, the cycle of the PCR testing. So we're talking about the, the nitty-gritty. Mm -hmm. So, so armed, with, armed with a capacity to understand data, which is something that most nutritional therapists reading research journals and teaching, we're from, we actually get to ask questions about statistics uh, and, and relative risks and absolute risks and so on. So, so important. Um, uh, you know, and, and the stress is therefore having by really by definition, if, if we've got a 0.000, you know, chance of having a problem under the age of 60, and maybe, maybe a lot of our audience who listen to you are under 60, you've got a minuscule risk if you've been infected by a vir any virus or SARS-CoV-2 virus or whatever variant that might be um, around, you've got an extremely low. I mean, it's so low, but you've got a much, much greater stress having a negative impact from stress. And stress lowers mucosal immunity. Yes. And mucosal immunity is how, how viruses get to us. But viruses bits of RNA and DNA, they're different to bacteria, um, and effectively. And, and, and there's still lots to learn about viruses and just how contagious they might be and how we actually catch them. But that, that's a slightly separate thing. But resilience, so what we're going through now as a nation compared to, let's say, Tanzania, um, which is completely open. They've got no 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 restrictions in place whatsoever. I know one of my clients is just he does business in Tanzania. He told me, with Tanzania, uh, uh, you would never know anything was going on. Um, and you go to Madagascar, very little go, but I don't know I don't know who goes to Madagascar and Belarus and various countries just have not implemented these things. It's a completely different situation. Uh, you're completely right. And I came across this the other day and I haven't looked into it further. However, one of the criticisms of this was that the population density is so low in these populations that it's mm. not fair to compare to England, for example, in the UK. But I don't yeah. know, what would you say to that? Well, I think, yes, I, I think that one needs to take is, yes, chalk and cheese comparisons are not appropriate, but when you're looking at the uh, the, the population, population density absolutely makes a difference. And I think you look at some, some areas like South Africa, where you'd expect there to be in the townships um, a massive array of, uh, of deaths, and that simply hasn't happened. Mm -hmm. And so it, so it hasn't happened in some densest populations. Also in, in Japan and Taiwan, where they're very dense populations, they've got a very low incidence of deaths compared to the UK. So there are definite comparisons, and I, I, I would recommend anyone who's interested in statistics is to is to check out uh, Ivor Cummins who is a graduate of Dublin University you may know of him um, and he's called he's got a website called the fat emperor and he basically helps to clarify um, issues and I find I find his interviews with with lifelong career statisticians and epidemiologists and him presenting the data as well I find very very stable stabilizing um, and helps to allay concerns and fears and helps get to see reality so I certainly recommend him. And I've, I've actually viewed, I spent about 250 hours viewing the data 
um, since March. Um, just just looking at independent scientists who are basically pure scientists with no no partisanship uh, one way or the other, but just simply want to get at what's really going on. Um, to because otherwise you you've got the situation where you have got you know um, statistics and statistics and damn lies. Um, you know you've actually you can say anything you want with statistics. So it's actually really appreciating the data, looking at patterns and curves. And having people with with no other interest in mind other than sharing the truth about the statistics, mm -hmm. they've got no other axe to grind, so they're completely apartisan or nonpartisan. So with resilience, so so cortisol, big stressor, and over time, our adrenal glands, the little fatty gland, which is like a mitre's peak of a shape um, on the adrenal, I call the adrenal glands, they produce cortisol. They actually they can over time they can fail to produce the hormones that are being being asked for. And so it works through a negative feedback loop, like, like just like your thermostat does for your central heating at home. You get a stimulus from the boiler. Oh, the boiler's on. You heat up the radiator. So when the heat goes up, the, the, the sensor, the thermostat reaches, oh, oh, the house is warm enough. I'll turn the boiler off. Mm -hmm. So it works just like that, a negative feedback loop. And we, we are, we're designed for short-term output of cortisol. But if we get this day after day after day after day, um, what happens is the thermostat becomes blunted to picking up the temperature in the house. So it keeps on pumping out the hot water to so get sort of hotter and hotter without registering. And so that blunting occurs in the, in the human state. And it's an, an imbalanced or blunted hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, HPAA is the technical term for it. And we get a blunting of it. And that's exactly what happens in time for anybody. But each of us might have a different time scale before that blunting occurs. And so some individuals might, might you know, the, the rope will fray and it'll break earlier or later, depending on who you are, what your reserves are, and in fact, what your nutrition is. And nutrition plays an amazingly important role in resilience. It's stunning just how important it is to nourish yourself properly. Although it's so obvious on some levels, if you nourish yourself well, and you, you basically have healthy cells and healthy mitochondria, which is uh, the energy sort of factors in the cell, but there's so much more. Um, if you've got healthy sets of those, and they can produce the right energy, you can withstand an awful lot. And so better nourished folk are better off in many ways in terms of all kinds of duresses and stresses. So cortisol is one is the major stress hormone, and this it undoubtedly it suppresses immunity over time, and it also interferes with thyroid hormone and then can interfere with energy, and it can also lead to poor memory, it can also lead to a whole array, osteoporosis, even with long-term high levels of cortisol. So it is it's a bit like having your own steroids which actually, we you know, have, have on a whole array of side effects. Mm -hmm. So cortisol, a very, very good thing, but we don't want too high level over time. And also if you have prolonged stress, then the system in the body will, literally the rope will fray. And it's a question of really when, not if, it will break. I think this is a really important point. And there's several um, points which I just want to uh, rewind back to. And you, you spoke about... Um news and the effects on cortisol it's just it's interesting from i guess an evolutionary biology perspective or just like looking at our evolution in general we wouldn't be um having this bombardment of news bad news stimulating cortisol all the, all the time and like our general working lives i think are potentially more stressful chronically than they would be if we were yes. living in caveman times where you know well, the stresses yeah. might be much greater but very acute like running away from a line for example i don't know something like yes. that Yes, you're right. And I think I think since the advent of the internet, things have changed. So mm -hmm. since the advent of gaslight, so with light, and therefore we're actually we we can actually stay up later than than the than the than the sunset would permit. Um, so since gaslight, so so basically electronic lights and in the industrialization that process has allowed us to live, um, keep awake for longer, 
Um, but also since the internet things have changed, and I'm 55 and I've witnessed, I've had probably half my life before and half my life after, or less than half my life after, if it's, was it 30 years or something on the internet. But, the, um, but that's also because we've got access to information nonstop. Mm-hmm. And so it's that you're absolutely right. It's that no, nowhere in man's history have we ever had this capacity to receive data, um, which can have a stimulatory effect. Now, each of us take on data, but most people would have a, is appreciate that the that, that greater number of deaths is, is a very bad thing. Very few people in the world would ever say it's a good thing at all. And so it's, it's all bad news um, and it's going to be going to be a taxing system uh, on our system for sure. So cortisol is one major hormone. And with more stress, you also deplete and upset neurotransmitters as well. Mm-hmm. And sorry, yeah. I'll, I'll let you finish. I, I just wanted to touch upon this because it's something I wrote cool. down whilst you were speaking is that them mm. um, with stress has become um, this kind of almost pandemic of insomnia um, of people not sleeping yeah. well um, yes. due to COVID-19 and these racing thoughts. And I just, I, I wanted you to, to, to speak about this because I know cortisol has a huge yeah. um, link. It does. In- it does. So if you think about the sunset, the sunrise and sunset, the cortisol levels are designed human beings to be high in the morning and then low in the evening. It's probably mm-hmm. the most obvious circadian rhythm that we have, a hormonal rhythm we have. So the women's female cycle, that's a 28 to 30 day cycle. And we've got various different peaks and troughs of, of estrogen and progesterone, which is which is the monthly cycle, but we have a daily cycle. And the daily cycle is pretty much determined by cortisol and melatonin. Melatonin being the sort of sleep hormone produced by the pineal. And if you've got elevated cortisol, you actually stop your melatonin from being produced. And elevated cortisol at night, when it should be a low level, definitely keeps you up. And so elevated cortisol absolutely is a negative factor that can induce type one or type two insomnia. They've got various different names now, uh, according to sleep experts, but it's uh, if I fall asleep fine, then, then I haven't got type one insomnia. But if I wake up in the night, I've got type two insomnia. So you've got type one and type two essentially. And we've got different sleep rhythms, but both can be disrupted by anxiety and stress. People can also wake up early in the morning. I'm waking up at five o'clock, can I get back to sleep? So it's not, so insomnia, any disruption of sleep. So it's either can't fall asleep because my mind's too active or for whatever reason. And or you wake up an hour or two or three or four after you go to bed. And then there's early morning awakening as well. So just to just give three basic categories of, of, of poor sleep. And then that, ironically, for those individuals who actually have poor sleep at night, it then leads to an elevated cortisol the next day through having one poor night of sleep. And so you can see how the vicious cycle begins. And um, I've seen many, many clients, and I have done for many years, who basically come to see me specifically for the fact that they are chronic insomniacs. From what you've said, it, ju- it just highlights that sleep is such a foundational pillar of health. I mean, I know Rongan yeah. talked about it in his book, and then Matthew Walker has popularized the book, I think, Why We Sleep. Um, yes. And it just seems to have a knock-on effect with literally everything. It seems yeah. like if you sleep less, you're going to perform less with your exercise. You're going to mm. be able to not... Have, be resilient from the stresses that you have in your everyday life yeah. and you're also going to have yes, more cravings to like increase grayling for example during the day um, yeah. so yeah you can get more hungry yeah yeah yes yeah, so in fact so yes sleep absolutely imperative and so cortisol plays a prime role in that and you really want to have a low level so sleep hygiene is now now a term that we use what's your sleep hygiene because it's so easy to get disrupted um i've got these blue light blocking glasses on um, at nine o'clock, I put on my amber shades, the ambers, and it actually just, my brain feels different in seconds of putting them on. I'm actually just calmer brained. And I've got a very, I go way too fast most of the time. Um, you know, I have lots of thoughts and, and my mouth tries to keep up sometimes. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, and I do really find it useful. Now I sleep very well as it happens. So that I'm very fortunate for that. My wife doesn't so much, 
So we need to be very careful. Um, and it really does affect her health. So I live with someone who has a great sensitivity to having uh, disturbed sleep. It's, it's a, it can be crippling. It really is a major factor. And then it diminishes our capacity to have resilience, which is bounce back ability. We don't bounce back. And so the sapling, if we're using that analogy, has been bent and then it doesn't come upright. It's like, hang on, I'm not functioning at my ideal level. And so the stress hormones or the anti-stress hormones, again, brilliant in that short term of like, wow, what a performance. You, you run over there, you picked up the heavy thing, you took it out of the way and you saved the day and the fire was put out and great. But if it goes on, if you've got low grade, it's actually, it's something it can be more subtle and more negative. But of course, we've got a raised level of what, what they perceive as a sort of new normal level of stress. It's a new normal. This is a, our general stress in this country, I would assert, is that the, the, the base level is higher. The background noise is much higher and so and that's taxing cortisol um so that it really is challenging so it's also challenging on neurotransmitters and uh, serotonin is, is the calming antidepressant neurotransmitter that actually converts to melatonin that can be interrupted by cortisol but also can be interrupted by many other things too so we've got some key players on the on the biochemical level your cortisol and melatonin very very important hormones and then we have serotonin which is the precursor for melatonin and we have a hormone a neurotransmitter called GABA and it's not really worth knowing it but it's called gamma amino butyric acid and the GABA GABA and GABA is the most abundant and important of the calming it's called inhibitory messengers in the brain called neurotransmitters so effectively neurotransmitters are like brain hormones that they're signaling agents and they command activity in the cells and you want a balance between excitatory you want to have enough get up and go neurotransmitters like dopamine, noradrenaline, and adrenaline, but that's only rarely, mm -hmm. um, and glutamate. And then we've got calming of GABA and serotonin. We want balance. So it's like a seesaw. We want balance. And the more you've got excitation, the more you actually use up the inhibitory neurotransmitters. So it literally is like a seesaw. So if you've got more of one, you'll end up with less of the other. So if you've got too much um, the dopamine and noradrenaline, it will actually deplete the calming neurotransmitters that, that are, they're really designed to create harmony and balance. And when we've got a low level of GABA, what tends to happen is it makes anyone's brain tend to go round and round on a certain subject and have more thoughts. And so it leads to anxiety. So low GABA leads to anxiety, whereas low serotonin tends to lead to poor mood. And the more duress we're put under, the more we deplete these calming neurotransmitters of GABA and serotonin. There are questionnaires that one can uh, take and you can get a pretty good idea whether someone's anxious or whether they're actually sort of gray, flat, and depressed, and that may link much more to serotonin. Are they open to the public? The questionnaires are available um, readily. In fact, I'm sure you do a DuckDuckGo search and you can find them um, for sure. So they're available. I, certainly, I, I, you know, I, I, I could send you the questionnaires I've gotten. Uh, uh, I haven't created these things. I've seen them from, from experts in the field who've written books on the subject and so on. Well, I'll be sure to link to them in the show notes. I'm sure that'll be hugely interesting for people. Yeah. Just to dive into what you said a little bit deeper, because you mentioned talking about depleting GABA and that causing anxiety, serotonin that causing low mood. Um, are there uh, actions that people take which deplete mm. one but not the other or deplete more of one? Oh, yeah, nice other? question. That, that's a really interesting discerning fact. Oh, that's specifically low in GABA and that's specifically low in serotonin. I'm not sure I can give you specific, uh, effectively, matters of duress, so stressful events, stressors, uh, will typically deplete the, the calming neurotransmitters of both serotonin and GABA. And what's been interesting for me over 
the last years, I, I was very fortunate to be asked by Penguin Books to anglicize a, a very good book called The Mood Cure by Julia Ross. Yeah. Um, and so we became friends literally online. And then she said, oh, I'll ask Penguin to get them to, or, or, and they'd heard from two or three people, just ask Anthony Haynes to do that. So whatever reason, <laughs> um, I felt honored for that. I basically, I turned all the American things into English things in her very good book. And certainly she's got a list of questionnaires in her book. So it's 20 years old or more. Um, and she wrote The Dark Cure and The Mood Cure. But The Mood Cure is a very, very good book. It's still very pertinent. She's a practitioner um, in the States, natural practitioner who accesses hormones as well, whereas natural practitioners in this country are not uh, in a position to use hormones. Um, and I, I learned a lot about the, sort of the, the messengers of the, of the brain. And I think certain individuals we, we will typically be more disposed to be more anxious and anxiety can then lead to depression over time mm -hmm. um, and other people tend to have depression and both states of mind often are actually reflected by lots and lots of overthinking even if the person in front of us may appear uh, or they may not be verbose they may be quite quiet but that does not mean to say they're not having more thoughts in their head so uh, overthinking is a is a pattern and it's a question of you can't really always guess that unless you're trained in the field certainly psychologists will be aware of it but you can be quite you can be quiet the quiet one and you can have many more thoughts than the loud one i guess an empty vessel makes the most noise that sort of thing but the yes. uh so 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 low gabba will tend to allow thoughts going round and round and round the same subject um so th those things are extremely common and then in order to allay that anxiety or to feel better if you're feeling a bit blue you'll naturally want to do something it's like you, your brain will be seeking out um, like a laser beam searching out, what can I do? What can I possibly do to feel better? And so then guess I'll, I'll engage in that behavior. So if I switch on the TV and I get a bit of a fix, it gives me a temporary fix of, now I can be more anxious, but I'm actually, I'm actually I'm uplifted by the stimulus of bad news, or I'll, I'll have a, a drink or I'll eat something. If I eat something, then the energy goes more to, I'm, I'm gonna eat my anxiety, I'll, and then I'll eat the food. And then I get used to sort of comfort eating and many, many people have a disordered eating pattern due to stresses. And they sort of either, most people tend to eat more. Mm -hmm. But I know some folk who actually, who then are then criticized by their friends. And so I, I envy that person. God, whenever they're stressed, they lose weight. I wish I could be like that, for example, I hear. And so we, we develop habits and means to simply conquer the imbalance. And uh, I, will, I will suggest an immediately a way of helping to deal with, with, with that situation in a practical sense, uh, for sure. Uh, we can do it nutritionally and we can do it in practical terms. So Just helping you move on to that, yeah, Anthony, sorry, sorry, sorry to yeah, interrupt, interrupt you there. Um, the Julia Ross book, actually a very, very good friend of mine, just to, give, to add a personal note to this, um, gave me that book after he, after they used it um, and said it was just life-changing for them. So that Fantastic. is a, just a testament to that. And I didn't know you had input, input in that book. So I'm very I think much I'm in the in index as the man, who, the man who put S's instead of Z's. Uh, for the, for the ang <laughs> anglicized vocabulary and a few other bits, but not much. But I went through every single word of the book, loved it, and thought, gosh, I wish I'd written this, um, which is a testament. And um, good relations with Julia Ross, so I haven't been in contact with her directly, but it is a very good book and it can be life changing because it talks about the biochemistry and therefore gives us the power to help manipulate in a very good way our neurotransmitter balance, which determines how we feel and then how we feel and what we think. And as Gandhi says, the thoughts that we have shape and create the world in which we exist and, um, and if your thoughts are flooded with negative thoughts and that world will become yours whereas if you have thoughts that are positive and uplifting that will be the world in which you, you exist 
Absolutely. And there's always people, um, and we're going slightly off topic there, but I will bring it back, I mm. promise you. <laughs> and there's always yeah. people I feel that can just have days where they're always constantly looking at the negatives which are happening around them. And I, I remember saying to it, well, it was a work colleague at the time, just count every single positive thing which happens to you, happens to you today. And if you're just fo focusing on the positive things which happen in the world, you are going to have a much better outlook on life and a much more positive yes. outlook on life rather than taking yeah. everything as it comes in. Cause, because, especially now, the majority of stuff which, which we're surrounded by is negative. So... Yeah. I think that's a hugely important point. Yeah, and there's a responsibility of the media, which uh, which I know that I know I know they are being sued by a number of different groups of class actions and individuals um, for the information they're giving out. I know that's happening, and I know the government's being sued. It might come to nothing, but I'm just sharing with you there are people who are taking legal action uh, about the negative impact and the negative news that's being disseminated, uh, which is massively affecting the population. And if we think about 388 deaths below 60 years of age. Uh, we know that the harm done by the anxiety and stress is going to be an awful lot more than those sad lives lost, um, for sure, uh, for many different reasons. So there are, um, there are ways of looking at it, certainly, and being in a space of gratitude, of giving thanks for to help to overcome this. And it can be, it can be, and it's putting into practice. It's the regularity of things that counts. And then we talk about neuroplasticity, which we can also talk about, is the more often you do something, the more often, more likely you are to create a neurological pathway for that thought process involved in that particular activity or thought. And so it's called neuroplasticity. And it's also referred to by the biohacking um, world where individuals sort of biohack, they sort of do things habitually and they create new, new ways of being. I had the great fortune in 2016 of going to a conference held by the Institute of Functional Medicine on, on the brain. And we uh, and Norman Deutsch, the author of the, the Brain That Heals Itself, and other luminaries of neuroplasticity and brain function were there. Um, we had, had all the relevant people whose names I can't necessarily list to you right now. But neuroplasticity was discussed, and apparently you can, you can create a new neuronal pathway. Um, so if, we think, if you're used to thinking negatively, well, then, then all I can recommend you do is, is identify, just as you've identified them, uh, be grateful, identify and be grateful for the positive things. And we can always find positives. And in, first of all, it may not feel wise. Well, I, I, I don't feel anything. I don't feel, oh, the sun rose today. I don't feel really positive about that. You know, um, or, or the, the blue sky was there or somebody opened the door for me or somebody sent me a smiley message. You know, whatever it might be. Um, if you do it regularly um, and you particularly feel, and the key is the emotional aspect of it, if you feel the positives, so that's why simply having a positive outlook and using maybe um, you know po you know positive affirmations doesn't necessarily always work. You need to feel it emotionally, and that helps to create the new neuronal pathway far more profoundly than if you simply said the words. So you say the words with feeling. I'm right. so thankful and grateful that I'm, I'm you know I am fundamentally fit and well. I'm so th I'm so thankful and grateful that my family fit more. So thankful and grateful that my uncle recovered from that virus and has got no problems. I'm so thankful and grateful that I'm still, I'm, I'm being furloughed. I'm being paid uh, while I'm not doing much. I'm so thankful <laughs> that I, I could get fit while I was yeah. in lockdown. I'm so thankful yeah. and grateful that I have a job. I'm so thankful and grateful that, that my parents are still around um, and, and, and they're okay. You know, it, there are so many things to be thankful for. I'm so thankful I can put food on my food on my table. I'm so thankful and grateful I can make decisions. So, and if you do that for how long? It's 42 consecutive days apparently is the is generally the minimal time to create a new neuronal pathway it's it's like the answer of life uh, in, in hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy 42 is the answer yeah. uh, 42 <laughs> days so 42 days now not all of us will do things in the right way in consecutive days so it's usually going to be a minimum of 42 days 
are doing something on a regular basis to create new neuronal pathways. And you can actually recreate um, the way that you are. And so instead of having the anxieties, if we liken it to a motorway system and all the thoughts take you in, in London, take you to the M25 and all, and all go around to the M1 to Anxietiesville, let's say, and, and we want to go to down the M3 to Carnesville, then that will take that can take a 42 plus day process of engaging your mind in a, in a different way of thinking. So when you get the, the, the thoughts that could lead straight up the M25, up the M1 into anxiety, I put yellow diversion signs up and go, I'm so thankful and grateful for that and take myself away from the heading north and to go southwest. And so just as a little visual, visual image for you, and I recommend that sort of thing to, to the vast majority of the clients in some way or other. Also, it, there are also ways of means of, of countering that. For example, when I heard the stats, if you believe the stats, then it's pretty depressing. So I went and looked and searched out these career statisticians and epidemiologists, and I read a Nobel Prize winners. And, and there are actually over, I mean, there are over 40,000 scientists uh, who are of uh, the same opinion, because they signed a declaration um, that actually states a somewhat different picture than that which we're being painted. But I haven't watched any BBC News or any ITV or Channel 4, I haven't watched any news since April because I realize it's just going to be a negative factor. If I want to get the data, I can go on the Office of National Statistics, which I do. I can go online, look at the stats. I can look at the information. But I'm looking at people who, have, who are basically independent scientists and observers, epidemiologists from Stanford and Harvard and Yale and Israel and Australia, all over the world. I'm just listening to the data and how they're, how they're presenting it. And it is a much less fearful process. And it arms you with intellectual knowledge. So intellectual understanding can also help to rationalize things about which we're anxious. So I found, I found that they're very useful process. We can apply that to anything that we're worried about. If it's about money, then you can say, well, actually, you know, learn a bit more about figures and money and, and percentages. And, and you speak to, you know, the banker or the financial advisor or the person you, you, you know, you're in debt to, or whatever it might be. And you can actually grapple the numbers. Whereas if it's a figure, oh my God, it's, I owe 10,000 pounds or I owe 100,000, whatever it might be, it can be overwhelming if you carry that around with every day. But if you have a way that you, you figured out, well, actually, over the next couple of years, if I put that much aside, da, 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 I can then whittle it down, you know, et cetera. So you can rationalize it mm -hmm. and then overcome it through intellectual understanding. And I think that's, a, and having critical thinking is a useful process rather than simply succumbing and say whatever the information uh, that I'm being shown is true. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And then there's a couple of points there that I want to, I want to touch upon. The first being, I guess that addictive thing plays in here. So the fact that it's negative and that they're always getting this more and more negative um, information and therefore it's more and more addictive. Um, yeah. The second point that I would like to make is... Um, when you're talking about we're able to find the, st the statistics and not read the news, for example, or look at the news or however you absorb this mm. kind of information. My girlfriend's got notifications on her phone, which I'm desperate for her to take off. What I was going to say to that is I think we're in a fortunate situation where we know how to seek out these statistics and also read them. Um, mm. And when I think statistics can be manipulated in a number of ways, and they certainly have, you know, the news is media in general is bad for doing this and they do this to normally to sell a story and they don't necessarily um show something which is false but the way they twist the t statistics makes you think it's much worse than it is for example yeah. currently um they say how many de deaths or fatalities have occurred within 28 days of testing positive for yes. COVID 19. a yes. we know there's some issues with the testing but also um if you look at the majority of cases which are in the hospital and at the very start of the pandemic when you saw that huge peak 
Um, a lot of patients did have COVID-19 within the hospital and were just getting tested. So even if you didn't have symptoms and it wasn't affecting your condition, but you were, um, you know, fatally ill, you'd be mm. tested for COVID-19, die of the condition that you came into hospital with and being treated for, so nothing to do with COVID-19, you'd be put down as a COVID-19 death because you died yes. testing positive for COVID-19. Yes. Um, yeah. and in fact, this came in the Irish Parliament. Um, there was a video I saw uh, yesterday. Uh, it was an, it was a committee hearing within the in the Irish Parliament, very clearly Irish accents. And um, the, the the question I asked the the expert who was actually appearing on a screen um, rather than in the room, and said, so if I, if a guy um, had a heart attack and went to hospital and he basically heart failure, and then they tested him because they've tested everyone and he's got COVID and then he died of heart disease, that would, he, would, would the man be put down as a death due to COVID? And the man, the son, the medical doctor on the end said, yes. And then he said, well, I broke, this guy came into hospital, he broke his leg, he broke his leg, was in hospital, they tested him for COVID, and then let's say that something unfortunate, let's say he got you know, an unfortunate situation of a clot or something due to the break in the leg and, and he died, he would be a COVID death. And now he said, yes. And so we now know that the Centre for Disease Control have come out with figures saying that of the of the of typically of the hundred people dying that were previously in the figures of dying with or of COVID, they estimate that maybe 94% were not actually of COVID, but possibly with COVID with other, other morbidities. And so they've they've actually had people who are shot, who people have fallen off motorbikes, um, who've been put down as COVID deaths. And I think this is now being this, well, I think it's common knowledge, but certainly I've seen that. And it, it does seem absurd. One of my clients is a, is a, is a nurse for geriatric, geriatric nurse, looks after old folk. Um, and, and dare I say it, I mean, you know, she, I won't divulge her name at all, uh, lest she be fired. But she said that she was, she was obliged to put, she, she locking a large group of uh, different care homes and old folks, and 30 people died in, in a period of, of two weeks. She was obliged to put them all down as COVID, even though they hadn't necessarily got positive tests. This is word of mouth. This is one first person account. And I've heard many others like it. So, we now know the statistics are sort of overblown, and also with regard to now, of course, where where the where the deaths gone from flu, compared to they aren't there, and of course you, you wonder, well, are there all the deaths that would have been from flu are they all now part of the SARS-CoV-2 or is it COVID-19? Again, do we know what COVID-19 is? COVID-19 may not be the viral infection, which is the SARS-CoV-2, which is the name of the virus. COVID-19 is actually the disease. Um, because they haven't actually yet isolated the virus in so on. So in the Freedom of Information Act, both in Ireland and the UK, letters have been written saying, can you please send me information about what you hold about the isolation of the virus in a person ill? You've isolated the virus and you can confirm it's there. And the Irish hospital wrote back to the lady in the English, the English, um, sorry, the English departments of health wrote back and said, we don't have that information. So now that, I, I haven't got the answer. It's like my jaw sort of slightly dropped, even though I've been used to this sort of, so hang on. They haven't isolated the virus and they haven't performed Cox postulates, K-O-C-H, Robert Koch, the famous French uh, German, sorry, German doctor, the Koch Institute in Berlin. I'd recommend you look up the Cox postulates if, you, if you're listening, look them up. They, they have not been undertaken for this virus. And I, and I don't know why. I haven't got the answers for it. I have questions, but I don't have answers because I'm, I'm not part of the system. I don't know why. I'd love these things to, to, I also don't know why vitamin C and vitamin D aren't being prescribed in quite high doses of meaningful doses because that would reduce the risk in one so so we've got yeah. so intellectual knowledge and because most health practitioners ben and, and i've been aware of this have been used to questioning what is perceived to be a status quo in health for uh, since they since the get-go we've all we've all been taught and learned that 
there are other there's another way forward there's another meaning to what's going on and so health practitioners i, I think are the are an ideal group of people who are able to think critically because we're aware of what goes on in society um, with with the vested interests and powers that be etc so there's no doubt there's a virus killing people and it's horrible to actually consider any death and it's not demeaning anyone's life however the statistics are certainly generating this this extra stress on us taxing our cortisol taxing our hypothermic pituitary adrenal axis depleting our gaba depleting serotonin and there are and, all, and putting a burden on that whole system very good bringing it back there by the yes. way anthony yeah um, so <laughs> and what we can do, and that what's very interesting is that psychosocial stress, and I'm talking now about something that's absolutely fascinating in, in terms of our evolution, psychosocial stress does the same thing in us now, today, as did a microbe, talking about a, a powerful microbe, a, a, a powerful bug that could have killed us as we, in our evolution, so thousands of years ago, infected by a bug, oh my goodness. So the body mounts this amazing response of inflammation, making its own bleach, hydrogen peroxide, and, and, and immune cells. And so we mount a big response, gosh, kid, I don't care about the consequences of, of what happens in the future. I've got to save the species. We've got to kill that bug now. What's fascinating is that ancient mechanism, which is triggering something called the inflammasome, actually has been found to occur. And it's quirky and, I, and it's basically, I don't know why, but it does occur under psychosocial stress. It triggers the inflammasome. Now what's fascinating about the inflammasome is it then induces a sort of a cascade on a biochemical level of, um, of which manipulates our neurotransmitters. So it alters our ability for serotonin to be produced. It directly stops the tryptophan 5-HTP serotonin pathway directly. It also produces, this inflammasome produces reactive oxygen species and nitrogenous um, oxidative stress so it's 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 free radicals and inflammation gets gets triggered and it directly as i said interferes with a powerful calming neurotransmitter so it doesn't interfere specifically with gaba but it will reduce gaba with the more stress you got and the free radicals will interfere with all neurotransmitter function so it lowers serotonin increases oxidative stress and actually directly leads to poor mood and that's psychosocial stress triggering the inflammasome. Now, inflammation can do that too. We can talk about that, but I must, I thought, must share that with you. So we've got the stress factor, cortisol. We've got the neurotransmitters being chewed up, the serotonin and GABA. And then we, and again, you might have too high level of glutamate, but remember, it's like a seesaw. If you've got too low a level of serotonin and GABA, you're going to have too high a level relatively mm-hmm. of the excitatory neurotransmitters, dopamine, noradrenaline, and glutamate. So how do you, so, so let's say you've got too little um, GABA, et cetera, um, and too, too much excitatory, excitatory, yeah. <laughs> am I saying that right? <laughs> excitatory. Excitatory, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, you know, just for everyone listening, it's 7 p.m. right now, and my brain is going to sleep, but Anthony's is firing on all cylinders, so let's, let's, let's carry this on. So if you <clears> have too many excitatory um, neurotransmitters, how do you calm them down? Or let's say you've got adequate GABA, adequate meaning like, a normal level of GABA, mm. but the excitatory neurotransmitters yep. are overwhelming you. How would yep. you calm them down? Yeah, it's a great question. We've got about two or three different ways, but guess what? Yoga has been found to raise GABA. Surprise, surprise. So yeah, I'm not talking about hot yoga. I'm talking about more like slow yoga. Um, so slow yoga, stretching, it's focusing. Your mind is in your body. You're focusing on the postures. So slow yoga. So stretching, slow yoga. You could press play on your, on your iPad and follow along. So that's one thing. Breathing out longer than breathing in changes the sympathetic 
parasympathetics that's part of the nervous systems mm-hmm. instantly yeah i'm a big fan of uh, four seven eight breathing which is popularized yeah. by andrew wheel um, and yeah. i do that every single night just yeah um, i think so yeah so but you know you got you got you got breathing out longer then you got pause and you got breathing in for sure amount of time so you've got different counts so hence four seven eight you can have various different connotations but as long as it's breathing out longer than in you, you're heading that way and the pause and so you might, the, might there's an ideal sort of set of numbers of, of breathing out and then pausing and breathing in um, and breathing into the bottom of your lungs the lungs at the bottom of your lungs <laughs> the bottom of the lungs actually transport and transfer oxygen more effectively than at the top of your lungs, which is another interesting phenomenon. But breathing out more than breathing in is something you can do immediately. You can engage in emotional freedom technique tapping, mm-hmm. which is a brilliant way of doing that. It's, 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 it's an acupressure point pressure and, and there are lots of YouTube videos on EFT. I'm a big fan of EFT. And there are some people who actually overcome. There's one story of a man overcoming chronic post-traumatic stress. It obviously is an anecdote and everyone will vary. But I did hear this is a one, one man overcame a sort of 20-year post-traumatic stress disorder in, in, in about 30 seconds using EFT. I mean, you know, such is the extent. So obviously, it's a bell-shaped curve of, of what people who re- respond to it. So there's meditation, there's yoga, there's breathing out. Of course, with yoga, you're controlling your breath as well. Um, and so that's, that's the practicalities. You can also put on amber shades because the amber, amber shades calms down the input and stops blue light from excitating your exciting your brain. So amber shades and also the, the color mauve or purple is a very useful color. So your jumper is perfect for calming the brain. So we need to buy Ben Atkinson's special, very inexpensive <laughs> jumper on sale after this particular um, conversation. So you've got various different colors. So that's so that's that, you know that's what you can do. But you also there are remedies you can take. Rescue remedy, which can be brilliant for some people. Or, or another batch fire remedy that helps particularly deal with shock like rock rose oh, uh, which is part of yeah part of so so that that can be useful too in terms of tinctures and remedies if you want to on a regular basis you know it's going to you can take l-theanine which is a natural supplement from green tea but not without the caffeine and theanine supports the production of gaba peripherally but also then that 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 can then affect what's going on in the brain so theanine is a calming agent and theanine with gaba is available from supplements outside the uk which is available online so theanine and gaba supplements although the gaba doesn't cross the blood brain barrier i found it to be i've used it in over 500 clients if not more and it can work tremendously well it can work within 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 10 minutes right okay well well, that's really interesting so what do you think is going on there if it's not entering the blood, uh, going through the blood brain barrier. Well, there's one brilliant neurologist who I could never challenge on, on the scientific level, but I having recommended a supplement to, I mean, it's probably, to be honest, it's more like a thousand clients over the last 20 years of theanine and GABA and having absolutely tremendous benefits on reducing anxiety, panic attacks, phobias. Um, that supplement was then discontinued because GABA was then not permitted for sale in the UK due to perceived risks. But of course, there are no risks as far as we know in, in certain doses. It's extremely safe. The tablets out of the body. And then I learned, then I learned after having witnessed this hundreds and, and, and thousands of times, because an individual would then feel calmer every day they took it. So if you take 500 people and they take it and they tell me about 30 instances in their last you know, six months that they felt better on it, of course, that's, that adds up to thousands of instances where this remedy worked. And so, and then I learned, oh, no, 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 no. Gabba doesn't cross blood brain barrier. It can't possibly, well, I've just witnessed it reducing the stress. So I believe it supports the overall peripheral nervous system which then has an impact on the central nervous system rather than necessarily um, massively increasing brain levels of GABA. But L-theanine does promote GABA levels in the brain. So I don't think it's, uh, you know, it's, I don't think it's like direct, but I think the overall effect in the body is a calming one. 
and what happens in the body affects the brain. I'm not saying, I'm not ever saying or claiming that suddenly the brain levels of GABA suddenly rocketed and that calmed everyone down. But having met people who couldn't fly because they literally would, and their hands were dripping with sweat and they had to go to the loo a few times, even at the mention of it, like a Pavlovian response, mm -hmm. and then take, a, take this remedy of Elthini and the GABA and fly. Wow. completely fine a man with agoraphobia i spoke to him on the phone this is the days when phone call consultations were not very common um it sounded fine on the phone but he couldn't go outside because the lamppost kept attacking him apparently so agoraphobia really uh, clearly a mental issue he didn't want to take medications he felt fine in the house but he just couldn't step outside so we got him a, po a posted pot of, of this thin in the gabba through the, and literally one neck he took it and then walked outside he's fine so it just shows you that it was actually a, a gabba insufficiency you could say that was actually leading to that that obsessive going round and round and round thought that actually then generated these these abnormal almost hallucinatory thoughts. So I got and I had a, a guy who um, golf. He he a very good golfer, but could never. But he was so nervous that on the first couple of holes he would cock up the tee shot. But I mean that he had a, a like handicap of nine or something. So he was a very good golfer, and he can and he lost he lost his shots on as most of his on the first three or four holes as he as he was so nervous. So he took Zen, bam. New handicap four, you know. I mean, it's just so you no. Know, so they can very trite, and it's not a big thing in this world right now. Someone's reducing their, their golf handicap is meaningless, but it just shows you that uh, phobias, fears, um, a, a tremendous effect, and that that effect can happen in a very short order, 10, 20, 30 minutes. So it's a question of the, the level of duress and stress one's under, but you can take that sort of remedy. There are also tinctures um, of which can support levels as well. Valerian hops and passiflora can also support GABA levels and they can help sleep. Mm -hmm. um, and so talking about sleep, so many individuals might have too much excitation at night and then not be able to sleep. And, uh, and you know, and I think if you, if you can't get to sleep, it might be exactly because you've got an overactive mind. However, what's really interesting is the people, the folk who wake up in the night do not always have the eggs. They sleep. Oh, I feel tired. They could fall asleep. They wake up in the night. It's actually, they don't need more calm. They might need more oomph. I'll explain that. They might, they wake up because potentially their blood sugar has gone too low. Nocturnal hyperglycemia. Have... I was going to, yeah. yeah, I wanted to bring this up before. So I'm really glad that you've brought it up now. Yeah. Um, this, this conversation was not pre-planned. It's, it's, it's free willing. So we didn't have this conversation before, but so nocturnal hyperglycemia. So, so weirdly I discovered that a certain B vitamin formula, which has got active B vitamins. So it's low dose. So, and I really recommend a high dose because I think I find that typically upregulates the cytochrome P450 liver detox pathways. And, and many people can't tolerate a high dose of B vitamins without feeling a bit nauseous or jittery. Um, low dose B, B vitamins with four active forms in there and, I, and it literally is resolved. And I've had quite a few practitioners see me as clients over the years, about 15, 20% of my clients are practitioners, in fact. And, and they, they've done everything. They've literally thrown the works. Every single calming thing you can ever think of, valerian hops, passiflora, melatonin, calcium, magnesium, combined magnesium, 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 um, and all kinds of things, calming, calming, calming. Um, you know, the theanine, the GABA. It's just, and it's just like, I still wake up at three o'clock in the morning, Anthony, what can I do? And actually it's like, ah, oh, give them the special B vitamin, support their adrenals during the day, support their blood sugar during the day um, to create this ideal of cortisol is high in the morning and then lower, uh, and, then, and balance blood sugar, balance blood sugar, absolutely vital. And give them something to support blood sugar, to sustain their level of blood sugar through the night. And lo and behold, instead of waking up at three, I woke up at five. The very first morning, I took the B complex, she says to me. And then and then as days go by, you can take one, two or three of these things and you can find the right dosing. I then slept till six or seven and I haven't felt better. It's amazing what a good night's sleep can do. So, Well, you so know who's having a problem with this? 
yours truly. Um, so that is something which I'm going to implement now because it's something which, because I started waking up or having trouble going to sleep and it felt like someone was just like pumping a little bit of adrenaline into my bloodstream and like yeah. jogging me awake. It was like, yeah, it probably, it probably was too. Um, it probably was. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I, I knew what it was. I'd like nocturnal hypoglycemia. I didn't, I've not tried these B vitamins. I have like a, a plethora of things that I go to from having trouble sleeping, but B vitamins certainly aren't one of them in terms of supporting adrenals during the day. Um, but I've, I've tried a tablespoon of raw honey just about 30 yeah. minutes before bed. And that's, yeah, that that seems to help very very well. However, yeah. this would be good because it, I don't feel I should need a little bit kick of sugar thirty minutes before bed. So that is something which I'm definitely going to implement. Yeah, I'll um, send you details of the specific formula. There are there are three different B vitamin complexes that are a lot, lot are similar. And actually, what I found is that through you know intuitive processes, that rather than trying to say, "Well, try that one, then that one, and that one," I, I generally can identify the one that may be most suitable. So I, I I'll, I've got the name. I'll ping you an email after this. Well, thank you um, very much. And you start with one, start with one, go to two, go to three, um, and that, that's somewhere to go. B vitamins are also very important as cofactors for quite a lot of the neurotransmitter uh, metabolisms as well. And so there may be a factor in there uh, potentially. But, but I would say fundamentally it's got to do actually with adrenals and blood sugar. And also it's the energy produced by the liver. The liver being the major organ for, for glucose production, essentially it's the major factory. And so the adrenals are the messenger and the liver is the is the is the is the factory making the glucose so often it could be it could be not just it's not to do with neurotransmitters it's actually got to do with liver energy mm. and therefore i would be looking in the, in the in the case history of such a person as yourself were there any other indicators for having um a, a liver issue or any other any signs or symptoms associated with liver because the liver performs was it 500 functions a day etc mm. etc et and so there may be other factors uh, that may point towards the, the being a liver issue so the liver is one of the major producers of inflammatory cytokines and inflammatory cytokines trigger the inflammasome. And the inflammasome, as we talked about, disrupts and produces negatives such as quinolinic acid. So the kinurenic quinolinic acid ratio, and if you've got too much quinolinic acid, it's a neurotoxin. And if you've got too much quinolinic acid, because you've got the inflammasome activation due to psychosocial stress, or indeed inflammatory cytokines from the liver, you could end up disrupting uh, harmony within the brain, and that could potentially affect sleep. Um, it could also affect the liver. The liver's the liver's you know aggravated, aggravating and aggravated itself by by not being able to detoxify things properly and, and having too much oxidative stress, which is remarkably common in the modern day. I find in my clients, uh, a lot of individuals need antioxidants for the liver to reduce cytokines, inflammatory cytokines, which are naturally there for to protect us, but then that triggers the inflammasome. So we want to stabilize our blood sugar. We want to have an antioxidant rich diet to mop up those free radicals mm -hmm. we want to uh, um, and then we also want to appreciate uh, certain practicalities of breathing out long and in uh, engaging in eft if that's appropriate finding yoga rather than sprinting on the treadmill um so I, the high intensity training hit training which I've, I've enjoyed from time to time for sure um of course if you do that at the wrong time of day or you do it as part of the get out of my anxiety state which is a good distraction you actually perpetuate sort of, well, that's giving you a sort of upper fix and you're going to have a downer from that. So in our hectic worlds, maybe we don't need hectic exercise. Maybe we need calm. And I've, I've certainly been, um, I've, I've fallen foul and made lots of mistakes because I basically was a high intensity exerciser for too many years. And it was like, wow. And I felt absolutely exhausted. So I've been, I've been super fit. I came second in a triathlon if I blow my trumpet on that level. Um, for a moment second in a triathlon it was uh, amazing well that's and, a um, huge achievement especially when uh, you're it, it, 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, basically, but I was exhausted. So if you say, Anthony, how are you? I say, I'm very fit. So how are you? I feel I feel exhausted, if I use polite language. <laughs> but I, and yeah, I was super fit, but absolutely exhausted. And so fitness, I would say, you can't measure health through fitness. And as Peter Baldwin, the famous cyclist, said, you know, he said he's, he, he felt so much better about a year or two after retiring because, of course, he's busting his lungs on, on, on the bike. Um, yeah. So it's very I, interesting to hear people admit, after that. The, the first and second year of my my time at university doing my biomed degree were probably where I looked the best in terms of aesthetically, in terms of like low body fat percentage, physically fit and performing well. But um, yeah, felt the worst I've ever felt, I think. Um, it was probably because mm. I'm hammering my body with like drinking and everything. That, yeah, you well, know, university play, playing hard and working to. hard. But also I, I think primarily was because I was just, I was too, too into my fitness and also had a reduction, reduced level of calories um, as well, which, you know, is a chronic stress over time when you don't have it. Yes, it is. Yeah. Hyperglycemia um, is a stress. Uh, inflammatory cytokines is a stress. Uh, worrying about, about health is a stress. Worrying about parents you can't see is a stress. Um, grand, of course, the grandparents now not be able to see their grandchildren. That's a stress. Or you, you can't see your parent who's ill. That's a stress. So we've got many more examples of, of very, very close sort of family oriented stresses. And then, of course, you've got the massive one, which is the financial issue. The, the money trees, the branches are bereft of money now. Um, and, and the numbers of, of course, the number, and, and you and my children are going to have to pay for this, the printed money effectively in the future. So taxes are going to be impacted, inflation is going to occur and so on and so on. So there's a massive financial burden of stress too, um, which, which is another factor as well. So there's financial worry as well as emotional concerns. And we know that the this situation has actually resulted in Unfortunately, you've got domestic abuse and domestic fights as well. They've been going on behind closed doors, of course, um, and that will affect the children. So those children are experiencing adverse childhood events. So really, it really has a, a massive cost. And what's really frustrating is the government didn't engage a, a fantastic team. They didn't engage a fantastic team to identify the potential impacts of lockdown. They simply went with the lockdown. So they went on one, one thing only. How can we limit the spread of this virus? And, and then so hopefully save the lives of certain people, numbers anyway. And they focus on that and they didn't focus on the, they didn't do an impact assessment. Non, and, and then only more recently have they conducted an impact assessment and they've discovered that Bristol University have conducted one. Maybe you've seen the, the, the headlines. They've identified that 300,000 people's lives will be lost prematurely on the basis of the lockdowns, which is way more than those being uh, apparently affected by COVID, if we can believe the statistics, which may top 100,000 now. So it's a three time fold increased death due to lockdowns than the actual virus itself. But was that in the headlines? I haven't watched any mainstream news to know, but I did read that information is the impact assessment if they'd done that initially. So again, it's all about knowing and, and then appreciating what's going on. But mm -hmm. ultimately, for those of us listening to, to this conversation is, of course, there need to be practical things and do ask me questions about that. But you get the idea that, that there's a hormonal thing with cortisol, melatonin, neurotransmitter thing with GABA and serotonin. The Absolutely. great news is you can in moments change that through certain habits and practices, slow yoga, maybe even Pilates, EFT, breathing out long and breathing in, four, seven, well, whichever. Four, we, seven, we, eight we, is what I use. Four, seven, like, eight, yeah. The, the, but you you're, use, you're right. There are many different variations of that. And, and then the rock star Dutch guy, Wim Hof, he's got breathing techniques as well. Um, so, so, so that's your 10 minute sort of cycles for him on YouTube as well. So there are definitely things we can do. And, and I've got some certain dietary 
tips for you as, as well. How do we nourish ourselves better? Well, certainly supplements contain concentrates, which are very useful. We talked about B vitamins, yeah. but certainly Anthony, I can give you... I, I want to roll back on there just, just for the yes. listeners that w- which are interested in that. Um, I interviewed Susie Glasky, who also is a practitioner of EFT. She's very, very good. Um, I'll link to that in the show notes for people. In terms of breath work, I interviewed Richie Bostock, which I'll link to that in the show notes for people as well, Fantastic. who's a, a wonderful practitioner of breath work. That's great. Um, I'm, I'm so glad you. you've had that, that experience with them. And this, this oh, sounds great. What great conversations. Uh, congratulations on having those folk on. Um, <laughs> and it, they can share so much. And it's interesting how, how as I said at the beginning, so resilience is whilst you've, you've heard the word, well, I ha- I've got RA, um, I've got IBS, I've got headaches, I've got migraines, I've got eczema. How does resilience affect me? Resilience affects everyone, it affects every condition. And the worse your condition, the more resilient support you're going to need. And so, in fact, actually, the more I contemplated this, the more relevant it is. I mean, you know, resilience is actually an anti-aging well-being program if we can focus on it. And so it's uh, having those other resources to hand is a very useful thing. Massively. And you were going to talk about um, diet um, where before I rudely interrupted you. <laughs> yeah, no, sure. No, the um, it's great to have a phone. I, I call it an Italian conversation where people sort of apparently speak over each other, but they still communicate. Um, <laughs> so yeah, with diet, effectively... Um, carbohydrates. So we're looking to minimize inflammation, optimize antioxidants. Um, and to do that, so there's various different types of diet. And when, when I looked at the types of diets that were available on the market, and I, I was writing a book on, on diet that was called The Insulin Factor in 2004, so many years ago. Um, and I looked then, and there may be more now, but there are 1,200 different types of diet. 1,200. 1,200. I mean, there's got to we, be variations we, of the same thing. Or yes, just yes. So it's a, like, a, like a Venn diagram. I guess you've got the Eskimo yeah. diet here, and I guess you've got the, 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 the Hudzu tribe diet sort of on, on separate yeah, poles yeah, and the yeah, Aboriginal yeah. diet. Obviously, South Beach diet. So the Mediterranean diet is well characterized as having, it's basically high in colorful vegetables, olive oil. Um, it's it's non-saturated fat proteins with fish more than the meats, for example. And it's also what's fascinating when we heard about when I when I listened to an, um, a debate on the subject is the one key factor was missed out, and I'll share it with you: is the time in which it takes to eat it. Right. Okay. Absolutely key. And so what's fascinating is there has a picture that pictures up of, of sort of paleo. And it was actually Lauren Cordain was actually on, on the stage, Dr. Lauren Cordain, the godfather of paleo, because yeah, he never yeah. created it. He simply someone identified that's what we used to eat. And of course, you used to eat different things depending where you were on planet Earth at the time, way back when. So so, so Lauren Cordain was on the stage. He had it. Then he had a, uh, a great a great advocate of the Mediterranean diet. And so they were basically sort of pinging back and forth. They had a fantastic MC who was who was uh, who was. Uh, handling the situation very well and um but then then the person talking about the mediterranean diet did something fantastic with a video of of the french or italian family he put it on slow motion and actually what it what it highlighted to everyone is that it, the speed at which you eat your meals is absolutely vital in order for you so it's actually saying grace before a meal being relaxed and calm being in nice company sort of being light-hearted of course if you're eating outside of the sunlight and you can see the sea it's wonderful yes uh, hence the Mediterranean diet. Um, so it wasn't just the food that people were eating, it was actually the way in which they ate it. Mm. Now, the speed at which we eat food is also very important because if you think about this, if you're shoveling in calories, if I use that term, quickly, the body recognizes this and it goes, oh, 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 oh I've got lots of food coming in. I better produce more of that hormone that stores these, these molecules of, of energy into the body. I better get more insulin produced. So you produce more insulin, no matter what food you're eating, really, the, the more you're shoveling in. So the quicker you eat, the more of the, oh, quick, I've got all this food coming in. I, I better get more insulin produced. So 
you, you produce, you ask your pancreas and the beta cells to make more insulin mm -hmm. and insulin lowers the blood sugar just to make sure you haven't got too much glucose in the system from the rapid intake of food, even if there wasn't necessarily that much carbohydrate in the meal. Whereas the, the Mediterranean diet, if you're eating, if you're eating slowly, you get more full by the way sooner if you eat slowly. Um, so you've got a regulated appetite and you're eating over time. You don't ever sort of introduce into your body any amount of food which will raise your blood sugar. So you minimize your insulin. Insulin in excess is the most inflammatory hormone we've got. And so we know that now in metabolic syndrome and diabetes and so on. So elevated levels of insulin are very pro-inflammatory. Inflammatory, inflammasome, upset neurotransmitters, diminished resilience. You with me, Ben? Yes, I'm very much with you. <laughs> so the speed at which you eat, um, uh, vital. So people who wolf down their food, I guess I guess wolves eat their food quickly because they've got to survive, got to eat it because it could be taken away by uh, something else. Uh, so I guess wolfing your food, I guess they, they're seen to gobble their food. In certain creatures, we, we're not designed for that. We're not designed. So rapid eating. So big meals, rapid eating are negative factors. So in terms of how we eat. It's also best to be prepared for eating. And if one's in excitatory sympathetic on mode when we're eating, that's shut down digestion. So digestion won't work so well. And we'll end up with, with issues, more inflammation in our gut as a result of that. We have the most inflammation in the human body after we've eaten food. And you don't want to make that worse by having a compromised digestion. So postprandial, you know, uh, I suppose hyperpermeability of the intestinal lining is a phenomenon for every human being. There's some degree of leaky gut after every meal that we eat. And I learned that from Dr. Mark Houston, the brilliant hypertensive cardiology professor uh, from Tennessee. I didn't um, know that. Yeah, fascinating. But, okay. but we, we can adapt to it. We can cope with a small amount. But if so, the quicker you eat, the more you eat, the more like that's to happen. So if you're in a, if you're in a stress mode or sympathetic on, so if that's actually going to stop your digestive system working, which requires a parasympathetic dominant state in order to work optimally. And so stress reduces the energy available to your digestion. And so therefore, I'd recommend grace, saying grace, saying a prayer, um, engaging in some breathing, doing some EFT, before you eat, calm your body down to allow the parasympathetic system to be on. And of course, a lot of people, if they're anxious, they eat while they're anxious because the energy it takes, takes energy away from their head. So the blood pooling to some degree, so you're digesting your food, it takes the energy away from the head. And you get some relief from the distraction of having overeaten because um, you're eating your anxiety. And I, th I think certainly in, in, in stress, and I was addicted that to carbohydrates. That's so interesting what you've just said. Yeah. And I never thought of it that way, but carry on. You, you were so, to so what we want to do is I did, I did, we eat three times a day. Most people need to three times a day. There's this real, f um, uh, there's a real, yeah, there's a real move towards intermittent fasting and that everyone would benefit from inter intermittent fasting, which basically means 16 hours of not eating and eight hours of eating. So you have a restricted window of eating. So it's restricted feeding time. However, and I don't know about you, but I, I'm going to ask you a question. How, what percentage of the population at large, not just, not just one's clients, what population, what percentage of the population do you think actually would truly benefit from having two meals a day where, where if we use intermittent fasting, I'm not talking about 12 hours or 13 hour fast, because that's, that's going to bed at night and waking up and having breakfast as usual. Um, I'm talking about really 16 hours. So that's really when it begins to, to be a more significant factor. I think 12, 13, 14 hours, you could do that by naturally anyway. But 16 hours, what percentage of the population do you think, I've got an opinion, it's only an opinion, do you think would benefit from engaging in eating two or even three meals a day in the eight-hour window, referred to as intermittent fasting or restricted feeding time? 
I don't, th- well, let's put it out there that I, I definitely don't think everyone would, and I can expand on yeah. that in a second. Um, but do I think, oh, it's, it's a very good question. And I, I guess my counter question to that, and I know I'm not answering your question, is like, do you mean in the in the world, or are you saying in the UK population? Or oh, US? let's say UK, because, um, yeah, there may be certain population groups that actually have, have survived very well on that style. Okay, and you take into account people like pregnant mothers. I don't think women do very well on 16-8 intermittent fasting in general, and that's primarily yeah. due to hormonal rhythm, rhythms. I think overstressed people will yeah. not do well. So I'm going to say, and it's going to be quite low, really. I'm going to say potentially 10 or 12%, and there you go. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. And so what's interesting, the more, thank you for thinking about it, because actually what you've shown is you've shown a, a basically a considered opinion rather than just a, yeah, it'll be good for him because loads of got, Look, if you've got 66% of adults who are overweight, that's at least 66% is going to benefit from intermittent fasting, Anthony, if you use that particular rule of thumb. But I, I entirely agree with your considered thinking. I would say that people with under underactive adrenals due to chronic stress, so they have hypocortisolemia, which is low levels of cortisol, mm-hmm. which you can also measure with a saliva test, or people with low thyroid, or people with anemia, or, or women wishing to optimize their fertility, um, or, or um, being pregnant or breastfeeding or having two or three kids to look after they need the energy um, and so we can see we can ever expanding groups of individuals who we say well actually probably not so good for them probably not so good for them and I would say that although I think it's great so so rather than having 60 or 70 or 80 or 90 percent of the population will benefit from intermittent fasting which is the sense we get from those who advocate it and look at like the, the metabolic syndrome diabetes look how well they can do because yeah. You know, I, I would assert that uh, to be honest, when, I, when I've done my review, I would say 20%, 20%. Uh, of, of folk probably would benefit from intermittent fasting, but each case needs to be looked at individually. So it is a, it is a broad brushstroke, but rather yeah. than saying, oh yeah, the majority of the people by some way would benefit from this this new f- potential fad, but it's a it's a famous naturopathic tool engaging in fasting because it can it'd be a fantastic way of instigating something called autophagy or autophagy or autophagy, which is self-cleaning, which is not for the topic of today. But in fact, what's interesting is the fact that extremely interesting as well. Um, but just to interrupt you for a second, Anthony, and I know I keep on doing it, but it's very hard over Zoom to not um, yes. Yes, of course. <laughs> or jump in in the middle of when you're yeah, talking. Yeah, yeah. Go, um, go, go. But but with their intermittent fasting, I always think it's quite interesting, like the actual name of it, because it's more like like you said before, time restricted feeding. And intermittent fasting means like fasting intermittently throughout the year, for example, which yes. I think is actually more beneficial potentially. Um, doing yeah. more two to three day fasts you get deeper into this autophagy that you've just touched upon now um, and yep. potentially benefit more people. Um, yes, so I, would... I agree. So it's about, it's about the sort of, um, it's about the vocabulary meaning, like, you know, what, what it means. And uh, I agree. And so some meanings are like the word clean, I eat clean. It's sort of been hijacked. So it's almost like it's a hijacked term. Uh, intermittent fasting has been hijacked by those uh, who refer to 16-8 or something. And therefore, there's more numbers. It's not four, seven, eight. It's sixty and eight. So we've got different numbers. Um, and I, and then people have hijacked the word clean, clean. What what exactly? Well, well, I wash my food before I eat it. You know, it's like it, that's not quite what I mean, clean. Um, you know, so what is what does it mean, clean? So you got so then you got orthorexia, and you got people who are actually who are actually addicted to eating only really healthy foods for themselves, but they don't really know what's really healthy for them, but they get stuck on these limited range of foods. So. Uh, again, meaning and what's what's common, and lots of people have uh, an, an emotional expression in terms of the way they eat. So um, I do have, you know, so it's the Mediterranean diet. That style of eating is very easy to find out what that is, effectively. So it's it's not vegan, it's not vegetarian. It's having protein sources, um, and certainly in France they they even use organ meats more, perhaps as well. But but certainly fish, protein, vegetables, colorful vegetables, olive oil, 
Olive oil has been found to reduce the oxidation of LDL cholesterol, the bad cholesterol, uh, within two weeks of consuming a certain number of grams, seven grams a day um, of olive oil. I mean, so it's a very good agent for cardiovascular health. Um, and can it prevent the, that oxidation? It's oxidized LDL, which is pro-atherogenic, and that's why that's relevant. Um, but cholesterol is only one of 51 markers, risk markers for heart disease, and it may not be the most important one by any means. I'm, I've never seen a case in my life where cholesterol has been the most important factor ever, and I never will. So, um, so we've got that. So we've got uh, carbohydrates. All carbohydrates lead to glucose. So it's really limiting carbohydrate intake, not having none, not having, not having, saying go keto, go very low carb, but it's a moderate to low carb intake. But I would say this, I would maintain that, um, that having no carbohydrates at breakfast is probably going to suit more people than having carbohydrates at breakfast. So there I've just said that 51% of people would benefit more, but it could be 75% or even more people would benefit <laughs> from having no carbohydrates at breakfast, um, yeah. but having some carbohydrate at lunch and dinner. And it sounds contrary because we we have this expression of having breakfast like a king, you know, lunch have lunch like a prince and dine like a pauper, mm -hmm. and it's sort of well that makes sense for digestive purposes because then we're not going to bed on the full tummy and so on. Um, however, I, I I actually don't believe that at all. I don't believe anyone should eat large meals. So okay. no large meals, no large carbohydrate intake, and um, I would say most people are better off having protein or protein and fat for breakfast and yeah. no, no carbohydrates. So the bowl of porridge or oatmeal is Mark Hyman. Uh, says in one of his many, in many books, um, Dr. Mark Hyman, the chairman of the Institute of Functional Medicine, he says, you know, oatmeal or granola, we thought that was healthy. Ba -ba, it ain't. The carbohydrate start of the day, not good news. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with you on the most part. However, I do know some people where it seems to work fairly well. If you look at their markers of health, for example, but I mean, we can go, dive into like what I said, like I said, health, it's, but... not, it's I said majority is it 50 yeah, is it yes, 75 absolutely, absolutely yeah. right. Um, yeah. Uh, but I was just highlighting the point that <clears throat> um, it doesn't work for me. I work on the protein to fat thing. So I have less than probably normally less than 15 grams of carbs, if I'm being honest. But this morning I had a smoothie and I had 160 grams of berries and that was my carbohydrate source. Um, mm. And the rest of it was nuts and chia seeds, etc. cetera. Um, but that's kind of what, what suits me. If I have any more than that, I tend to crave. I tend to have cravings basically <clears throat> within mm. three hours. It just yes. seems to go through. Yeah, because what's happening is the blood sugar. And of course, listen to if there is a it's a nocturnal hyperglycemia. So we're talking about so resilient blood sugar balance, resilient adrenal response. And of course, what's vital for us, and so I've been a practitioner for 29 years, and who knows what the next 29 years will bring, um, is um, listen to Much what works knowledge. for someone. So I think I think the, the nothing is nothing is saying, look, we're dictating. Ben and I are figuring out how to solve the world's problems. <laughs> We're not. It's actually, I would say, listen to, to what's successful. So if I just said, how do you, you get on, Ben? You said, Ben, when I have carbohydrates in the morning, I feel I have a craving throughout. I say, well, maybe the carbohydrates aren't so good for you. And you go, I'll try the, the low-carb. Yeah, it works for me, Anthony. So I think trial and error and listening, listening, listening. So as one very wise doctor said, the most valuable tool or asset that I have is my ears. Um, you know, listen, listen, listen. So obviously it's eyes and ears, listening, appreciating, receiving data rather than simply spewing. Um, this is what the research shows and so on. So it's very interesting. The, the man who coined the term metabolic syndrome is called Dr. Jerry Reven. Um, I think he worked at Harvard. Or was it Stanford? Maybe Stanford. So Dr. Jerry Reven, R-E-A-V-E-N. He's a research scientist. He never actually seen a single client or patient for one-to-one -one support, but he worked with groups of people looking at research data. So uh, there, there was he, and then there was uh, then there was um, 
Barry Sears, PhD, who wrote the Zone book, and he was yeah. on the dais, and they're having a conversation. Well, Barry Sears, he, he took um, swimmers in the, in the Atlanta Olympics. He had seven of his of his of his devotees, according to his 40-30-30 diet, won medals in swimming, um, which is pretty cool. So, right under on his direction, seven medals were pretty impressive. So clearly, That's it's working. Impressive. Uh, 40, 30, 30, balancing icosanoids, and I uh, had the great pleasure of meeting Barry Sears, who is, who is an interesting character. Um, and uh, so you, you had Jerry Reven, and all Jerry Reven can say, he says, the research shows this. And Barry Sears says, well, you know, well, no, everyone, everyone is 40, 30, 30. And then, then we had Phil Maffetone, who is a brilliant clinician. I've not heard of him. Okay. Phil Maffetone. No, he's, he's a legend, within, but you know, very modest and not got out there in a sense. And this was some time ago. Uh, but basically a brilliant, he was a kinesiologist and one-to-one therapist. So basically the answers they had was the research shows this, uh, to any question, Joe Reven said, the research shows this, do this, whatever it was. So like intermittent fasting for everyone, do do that, that that's, and that's it. Barry Sears says, guess what? The zone dart's going to work for you, the zone dart for everyone. And Phil Maffetone said, well, it depends. Um, and you know, and, and the practitioners in the room could see that the the person you're going to go with is the person who appreciates the fact that everyone's an individual. Everyone needs something different, and it depends. It depends. So the answer always depends. So eminent. I mean, I'm not knocking Jerry Reeves' research. Fantastic research. Coin metabolic syndrome uh, legend. Barry Sears, the Zone, unbelievable. Well, medals for America, but also books and and I mean, just a just great you know contribution to our understanding of. Of macronutrient ratios and have impacts on health, and then Phil Maffetone, the the ultimate practitioner who basically assessed the biochemical individuality of everyone he met, and then it always depended on 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 what the individual needed, essentially how they got on. Um, so so I He's think it's important one for for me to research then. Yeah. Uh, and this was some years ago, so who knows if he's around? He had silver hair at the time, I think, or white hair at the time. Um, so so Mediterranean diet, three meals a day. Protein your first meal, uh, balanced blood sugar. Don't eat too many, don't, don't eat large meals. Um, eat a wide variety of foods with lots of color in to provide the polyphenols and the antioxidants, the flavonoids that, that provide the antioxidants to reduce inflammation. Reduce inflammation is vital. If you balance your blood sugar, you're also reducing your inflammation from having too much insulin. You're also not taxing your adrenals because every time you have a low blood sugar after insulin, you're taxing the adrenals to raise cortisol. And the cortisol needs to be made in the liver. So it strikes me that if you have a craving, anyone has a craving, is that the, the insulin has been more powerful in lowering blood sugar than the mechanisms in the body have been to raise blood sugar. Um, and it's curious how that actually works. Um, can you imagine if, if the ability to raise blood sugar was equal to that of lowering blood sugar, no one in the world would have ever had a craving. Mm-hmm. Hmm, interesting, right? So glucagon is not as powerful as insulin. There must be a reason for that. And that's because high blood sugar is so detrimental to health, even though hyperglycemia may be more perceptible and feel much more awful than diabetes, when someone could have diabetes for years and not even know it. Yeah. And then discovers he's got a foot ulcer, so it doesn't cure, uh, it doesn't resolve. So um, you, you've, so we, I know we cut a lot and time does fly. And um, I hope this has I been, know. for me, it's a thoroughly interesting conversation. And thank you for, for having me uh, talking about it. You ask me, you, you had three questions to ask me as well. I I've three got questions some that I ask everyone that comes on the show. Anthony, j- just before we go on to them, I just want yeah, to say it's been a real pleasure to speak to you. I, I thoroughly appreciate your time. Um, I know it's late in the day as well, so I, I, we will end this now. <laughs> now <laughs> but I, just I, before you go. Yeah, I will say that I, I tend to, unfortunately, work till about, I work too late, too long. And um, forgive me, this is not necessarily late for me. But is it not? Go. Well, there you go. Um, unfortunately not. I, 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 
this is not, I'm not proud of it. This is actually something that I'd love to change, um, which uh, basically I, I uh, yeah, I can work until mid mm, 10 o'clock most nights. <laughs> okay. So, um, I, of course, I, lo I love the work, love the work. There's no doubt about it, but it is, it is, it is a challenge. And, um, anyway, there we go. So I'm very happy to answer your questions now, boss. Awesome. <laughs> well, the first question, which I ask everyone that comes on the mm. show, what is the most impactful change that you've made in your life and why? Yeah, and I got that in advance as well, the questions. I've thought about it, and I've been very safe in answers. Impactful change. Well, I didn't know it, but I'm celiac, so avoiding gluten had a massive effect on me. Avoiding oats had a bigger impact on me than avoiding wheat. So I would say that, that, that I, did, I thought I was non-celiac gluten sensitive, but then it turns out that I'm actually celiac. And so, but ultimately, avoiding oats, avoiding gluten, avoiding oats has probably had the biggest impact because I was addicted to both. Mm -hmm. um, and I had gut issues and, and, and just basically so I didn't feel good and brain fog and bloating. So I, I guess physically, physically that, that change, I would say, I'm going to answer your question. I'm going to be rather cheeky. And so I think the change I made and I made a decision very, very, very early on in my life, about seven years of age and I'm 55 now, I made the commitment to being fit no matter what. So come rain, come shine, I'm freezing weather, and nowadays I'm, it's freezing outside. I still train it in zero degrees. Um, I've got I've got some weights in there, and so basically I'm I'm less committed to being fit now, but I'm more committed to being strong, mm -hmm. and that's actually to promote uh, the to to basically prevent sarcopenia manifesting, so lack of muscle mass as we age, and also to strengthen strengthen my bone mass, but also to support my physical resilience. In fact, so it's commit absolute. So, so forgive me, it doesn't matter what's going on, and you may be able to let this, it uh, doesn't matter what's going on, I'm going to be keeping fit and strong. So that's basically had a big impact because effectively it's, it's fortified my body in order that I can work so many hours until 10 o'clock every night sort of thing. So it's actually not that I'm proud of that, and I really wish I didn't, didn't have done that. So that's, that's the answer to that question. Fantastic. And the second one that I am... Mm -hmm. um ask everyone that comes on the show. I should really stop in saying that. <laughs> How can yeah. healthcare become more integrated with the kind of modalities that we have spoken about today? Well, it's fascinating because it, it, it expands on the conversation we had earlier, but I think the recognition of the term resilience, so bringing it into the consciousness of actually talking about resilience and appreciating that there's an awful lot you can do nutritionally, but actually everything you can do nutritionally is going to support resilience on some level. It's going to support your cells, your mitochondria, it's going to support your adrenals, it's going to support your liver, it's going to support your brain for sleep. So in fact, in fact, really identifying resilience as a, as a phenomenon. And so I, I think this, your, this podcast will, it will support the ability of that word to actually have a, a meaning. And it's basically bounce back ability on every level, on a cell level, on a liver level, adrenal level, on a health level, on et cetera, et cetera, so that the sapling remains in, in a flexible state, upright as it was before the winds came. So I think, I think um, expanding the awareness of, of, of resilience and appreciating that there's a huge number of things we could do nutritionally to support us um, to improve resilience, I think, I think then it can, be, can become part of the lexicon of health challenges that person has a failure of resilience, has a lack of resilience. And to bring into our language, what can we do to support that? Which aspect of health? Is it neurological? Is it are neurotransmitters? Is it adrenal, hormonal? Is it gut-related? Is it liver-related? Is it, is it ability to sustain blood sugar level through the night? You know, so we can actually break down the piece of health. So I think most, most practitioners are generally looking to support the resilience of every client they see, but they don't even voice it 
in such terms. Mm -hmm. So that's my answer to that question. That was a hugely interesting way of looking at it. And I, I am going to ask you the last question, but before I do, can you please tell the listeners where they can find you and what exciting projects that you have coming up? Yes, always so many things on. I um, <laughs> this year I've had a website for the first time. I because I had a, a brief story. I'm just I was I had a, an article in the Financial Times and the Times, so the Times newspaper, in 1997, ooh, 24 years ago, 680 clients from that one article. Never needed a website since. Never needed marketing. I paid for one marketing in my life. I'll never do it again because uh, I never didn't bring anything in. So it's by referral. So I still have referrals from some of those clients I saw 20 plus years ago. Uh, who refer me to friends and, and family and so on. So, um, I but I've got a website. It's haineshealthmanuals.com. Haines Health, Haines, H-A-Y, as in the car manuals. And it's basically uh, the car manuals that were, used to be produced for every car are the Haines, and the, they are a distant relation of mine. Um, strangely enough, they live two miles away from me now, as it happens, I've <laughs> learned. Uh, but haineshealthmanuals.com, um, and there's some information there. Um, I've got some free videos on thyroid health. So I focus on that in the lockdown. I focus on thyroid health, but I focus on many different aspects. Um, I will intend to expand that, the library of sort of courses and information on the videos. Um, but, as you know, time is, is, is pressing and I'm looking to, to support my family with, with business to, to all the machinery, as it were. So that is, is taking some away from that. So HaneshealthManuals.com. There's some free videos for you about the thyroid act. My aim is to get up many more different courses. And so it's not sort of complete. So please don't complain about that, but that's a way of getting in contact with me. Um, and yeah, so that's how, to, that's how to contact me. Certainly if individuals want to uh, contact me directly, I'm very happy to give my email out. Um, you can give that out in the, in, in the messages here, but it's my name and the, you can put it in your, in your um, resources. Mm -hmm. um, Anthony with no H, Anthony J Haynes at AOL.com. Anyone interested? in communicating with me, um, then do so. Um, I, I can't get back to you on the same day, obviously, necessarily. Um, but just, yeah, I'd like to hear from you. But really, I offer consultations on Tuesdays and Thursdays. I'm involved in supporting the, 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 the Nutrilink team in terms of nutritional supplement uh, information and nutritional help on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. Yeah. Perfect. And I'll link to all your websites and all the resources in the show notes. Yeah. Um, and that brings us to the final question anthony so can you mm. please provide the listeners and we've provided loads already so maybe three different ones yes. <laughs> provide the listeners yes. with three quick tips to help improve their health and well-being yeah. from today yeah um i'm a nutritional therapist first but of course all nutritional therapists actually become become i'm not don't, of course we're not qualified psychotherapists but we, we we end up having the skills of of psychologists or psychotherapists I'm not diminishing the fact that, that being trained in it is a vital thing and it's separate um, and also we become lifestyle management practice uh, sort of experts as well. Um, so I would say the first thing to do is have protein for breakfast. I'd, I'd, I'd say that's probably the single most big, the biggest nutritional con contribution I think I've made to the world. It's, it's strongly recommending a protein for breakfast and no carbs or protein and fat for breakfast and no carbs. That's probably what I would say. Give it a go. See what happens. What can I say? So that's number one. Protein for breakfast because so many people don't do it. They just they don't have a smoothie and they have nuts and seeds and they have berries and they have any protein. Protein is not in nuts and seeds. Don't believe a word of it. Another conversation on protein perhaps coming up. Um, <laughs> I would say then the second thing I do is I would say because of the addiction aspect and because of blood sugar and because of the excitation we think and because of the anxiety and stress, I would say minimize absolutely all stimulants because that that's the road the the road to ruin um, and the road to being out of control. And the road to things choosing you and you not choosing them. So minimize all stimulants, tea, coffee, 
um, one, one glass of alcohol can be stimulatory, two glasses can be a sort of depressant, but one glass can be stimulatory from various different drugs. So I would say, and, and of course, quick refined sugar, maybe I'd include in that too, is, is an upper. So it's really similar because everything goes up, must come down, and you're depleting the process, you're depleting your resilience when you do so. So I would say minimize all stimulants because I reckon addiction is one of the antitheses, the opposite of resilience. And the third thing I'll do is, um, uh, it's, got, it's going to be a non-nutritional one. And, I, and I'm going to point people to something, and, and you may not have interviewed this, this Mexican, if he's still alive, it's called Don Miguel Ruiz, R-U-I-Z, Don Miguel Ruiz. And he's, he's written a book that's been published a number of millions of times. So he, he, I think it's hit the few million publication marks. And his book is called The Four Agreements. And so whilst it's, it's actually four recommendations in one, so it's slightly cheeky. So I would say that um, we've, we covered a number of nutritional things, and I wouldn't necessarily have said this if we had already not covered those, like Mediterranean diet and so on. The four agreements, by leading your life according to these, so it's non-religious, so it's a secular process of way to lead your lives. And he maintained, here are four things. He won, he won award for humanitarian contributions uh, or contributions to humanity. From the Mexican government. I don't know how often they give those out at all, but he got an award. The first one, uh, I'll read them out, and so then we're going to win. The first one is do your best. The second one is be true to your word. So do what you say you're going to do. Mm -hmm. And I know when I haven't done that. And uh, so it's a work in progress and fallible, fallibility of all human, etc. But aim to do your best, be true to your word. Um, I think they're in sequence. Number three is don't take anything personally. And number four is don't make any assumptions. And those that. are the four agreements. And it's been read by millions of people. And I found that when I adopted those more consciously, then I may have been sort of unwittingly doing those things anyway. Um, I, it, it, it definitely helped to improve the quality of my life. That is not something I expected uh, you to say at all or bring up. So um, that is that is definitely a book that I will buy and read. Yeah, um, it's, a very, it's a very small book. And uh, then his son, um, who's called um, Ruiz, his surname anyway, um, he came up with a fifth. Just so this is just an interesting one. The fifth, so it's a fifth agreement. It's like, wow, the extension. I'm just going to cash in on what my dad's done. <laughs> I'm going to get in there somehow, says says little uh, little little Nicky, whoever his name is. So his son, I forget, I, I forget his name. Um, sorry to say, he said uh, the fifth one is more complicated. He said, um, "Be skeptical, but be open to learning. Be skeptical, but be open to learning." Is the fifth agreement, and I'd recommend that that one is particularly relevant in these times. Be skeptical of what you're hearing, but be open to learning, and do your own research. Which yeah. is I've slightly extended it, so that's the the Anthony Haynes addendum to the fifth <laughs> agreement. Do your own research. Look it up yourself. Look it up yourself. Don't don't believe anything you hear. Look it up. Look it up from independent sources. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've blown this uh, horn so many times that we need more skeptics and less cynics in the world. Um, yes, cynics means that when they hear it, they won't believe it anyway. Skeptics means they will believe it when they hear it, correct? Yeah. I agree with you completely. I've said the same thing. I've said the exact same thing, Ben. I, I said, yeah, cynic, a cynic is someone I don't want to, have to spend any time with. Skeptics, yeah, good stuff. Challenge me. Challenge yeah. me. Yeah. You know, challenge That's it. how we grow, right? We get yeah. challenged and we learn from it anyway. Yeah. Um, Anthony, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. I've, yeah, I've, I've really enjoyed it. Enjoyed Thank you time. so much for having me. And I just want to uh, wish all the, uh, the listeners well. And congratulations on tuning into Ben Atkinson, who, with whom I was super impressed within seconds of first meeting you five years ago. 
which we could maybe talk about another time as well without embarrassing you. But the, uh, <laughs> thank you so much for hosting me. It's been a pleasure. I hope it's been useful for, for you and uh, I'll send a list of that B vitamin and also to the people listening. I hope, hope it's been something that's been supportive. It's uh, a good reminder on the one hand, but also maybe you've learned something as well. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you for listening to the Functional Health Podcast. You can find links to everything that we talked about today in the show notes. If you have a second, please consider leaving a five-star rating on iTunes. It really does make a huge difference and helps get this valuable information out and reach more people. Don't forget to subscribe so you can stay up to date and know whenever I release a new episode. You can connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, or our website, and all questions are welcome. As always, thanks to Joss Aurelia for the editing and Alan Harper for his support.